I invite you to the second chapter of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. It is natural for Christians to seek a local church that meets their needs and addresses their unique interests. It is also natural for us to define our needs and emphasize our interests in self-serving ways that detract from God's glory. As we considered last week, our natural propensity is to center our focus on who is like me and who likes me. To perceive our relationships primarily in terms of how others meet my needs and address my interests and put me at ease. A few years ago, there was a church growth expert who encouraged this very thinking by exhorting church leaders to determine who it was in the community that you would like to vacation with. And once you figured out who you would like to vacation with, then market your church to meet those kinds of people. I'm pretty sure that that thought never crossed the mind of the Apostle Paul. Who would I like to vacation with? And that's who I'll reach. And I think, in fact, it is a million miles away from the mind of Jesus Christ. As natural as such an orientation may be, the Holy Spirit counsels us to adopt a radically different perspective of our relationships with one another. We witnessed this orientation last week in the Apostle Paul's correspondence with the believers at Thessalonica. Paul's letters indicate to us, all of his letters combined, that every fiber of his body, every passion of his soul, pulsated with zealous love for others. No matter his own circumstances, his well-being was sustained by the mere knowledge of the prosperity of others. And we ask the question, was Paul's love motivated merely by social acceptance and warm friendships with others? Was it driven by family vacation compatibility? Clearly not. Paul's intense love for others came from being fully alive to this reality. God is a God of sovereign grace and transforming power, and He is operating freely in this world of sinners. He's doing a work. And Paul signed on. He wanted a piece of that work. He wanted to be involved himself in the reality of what God was doing to transform lives, to change sinners with the Gospel. As we consider today a short section of Paul's letter to the Philippian church, we're reminded that we should not dismiss Paul's orientation as the unique perspective of a super-apostle. I tried to argue along those lines last week, and let's remember it again this week. In fact, I think we see it here in chapter 2 and verse 29, where after a discussion of Timothy and Epaphroditus, you notice they're beginning at verse 19, down in verse 29 of Philippians chapter 2, we read these words, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. In the plural hill, referring to Timothy and Epaphroditus, the singular referring to Epaphroditus, which is the second person that he discusses. But verse 29 says, honor such men. This implies what? It implies that the Philippian church was to see the orientation of Timothy and Epaphroditus toward other believers as morally commendable to God. 
and morally commendable in the sight of God, it was thus worthy of honor and emulation in the assembly. These are men the Apostle Paul lifts up and encourages the body of believers there at Philippi to honor, to reverence, and certainly to emulate. Now, they were not strange birds shackled with a stunted sense of social interest. That's not the point here. They were really followers of Jesus whose vision provided them with the right orientation toward others. From Paul's commendation of Timothy to the Philippians, I'd like us to consider two characteristics that mark those who rightly relate as believers to others around them. Now here we're dealing in this context primarily with one believer relating to another believer. This certainly applies, however, to our relationship with the lost. But I'd like to just kind of park on these two ideas as a parallel with last week's message and to understand how believers are to relate to one another. Believers who relate properly to one another, we will notice here in verse 19, are anxious to learn of God's grace operating in the lives of God's people. They're anxious to hear, to learn of God's grace operating in the lives of God's people. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord, the apostle writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul is in prison, chapter 1, verse 1. Timothy is apparently able to gain access to Paul and minister to Paul's needs there in prison. But Paul proposes to send Timothy to Philippi because Paul is anxious to hear a report of their spiritual progress. Now, if you've read the New Testament through several times, you become accustomed with the words of Paul. It's easy to kind of fall asleep here. Paul's saying this kind of thing all of the time. He always wants to know about everybody. But I think it's right here that indeed we need to wake up. We're so accustomed to his soul shepherd interest that we take it for granted. But it's here that we need to take careful stock of Paul's orientation. Every letter Paul writes pulsates with intensity for the spiritual progress of his readers. Let's just cross-reference one other example, just for parallel purposes. Romans chapter 1 and verse 9. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 1 and verse 9. Romans 1 and verse 9, the Apostle writes to the Roman believers, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. There again is that intensity to be with believers. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, his focus in getting with them is their spiritual progress. That is, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He has a personal interest in this visit. It is for his own faith to be encouraged as he relates to them. He has an interest in the Roman believers that they would be encouraged in their faith as they see Him. And on more than one occasion in Paul's ministry, he sent a trusted worker on a long journey 
to encourage a church and to learn of its spiritual growth. We read of passages in 2 Corinthians 7, 5 and following, in Ephesians 6, 21 and 22, in 1 Thessalonians 2, as we looked at last week, these sections speaking of Paul's intense desire to visit other believers, to be encouraged by them, and to pour his life into them. I think if we get a clear vision of what God is doing in this world to transform sinners, and if we gain an accurate sense of how violently Satan attacks the faith of believers, we will be filled with holy anxiety for God's people. If you truly adopt this perspective, the anxiety of your heart, that which makes you worried, that which makes you anxious, that which fills you with concern, will not be fueled by how people mistreat you, but by how people are progressing in their relationship with God. And we're all there, aren't we? It's extremely easy to be offended by others, to line ourselves up and to consider how everyone around us is treating us and relating to us, and we've got usually pretty close to 20-20 vision to see the errors of others. But I'm encouraged here, in fact rebuked here, to remember that were we rightly related to the cause of Christ, our greatest concern would be that others are progressing in the faith. I think when it comes to relating to lost people, so often we're concerned about how they see us, maybe times in which they cause us great trouble. But our greatest worry and concern should be that they're on their way to hell that they are lost and headed for a Christless eternity. That should dominate my concern for the lost in all situations. As we come to church, we should come, I believe, anxious to see if someone is here. Do you come that way today, anxious to see if someone came today? Someone perhaps who is struggling in the faith, Someone who is having difficulty walking with God. Someone who is just coming into the knowledge of Christ, either as an unbeliever or as a new believer. Do you come with anxiety hoping to see someone here? Anxious to hear of the progress of others. In fact, even those that have been here with us for years and that we know deeply. Do we come with this great concern for one another's spiritual progress? It's very possible you may have never thought in such terms. I hope that as a church that's not the case. And I think as our orientation would take us, we're not thinking in those ways. But sadly, I think that's where many Christians live their life. Everything is about how people relate to them on a social level, and they've really never had anything you could call anxiety for another believer's growth. The reason is not if you find yourself in that place, the reason is not because you're not a pastor. It's because you do not have the mind of Christ. Jesus calls us to love one another with the love of Jesus. And that means that my number one concern for any lost person and for any believer that I meet or know is for their conformity to the likeness of Jesus. That's number one. That must define my anxiety. So Paul wants to send Timothy to the Philippians to see how they are doing, 
There's anxiety in his heart for their growth. And the anxiety we see expressed in many other books. We find Paul's purpose for sending Timothy here in verse 19 as well. The latter part of the verse, you, you note the phrase, so that, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I think Paul speaks here in shorthand. He's not taking the time to explain that the Philippians will be encouraged by news about him. What he's really concerned about here is that he will be cheered by news of them. He is in prison. Now think about it for a moment. Again, we get accustomed to this thought. Yeah, Paul writes lots of things in prison. He's in prison. And it's not a pretty place in the Roman world. But in that prison... We could probably, from our perspective, our Western setting, our American expectations, just about melt down in a Roman prison in one day. But in that prison, Paul's anxiety is not so much for himself as it is for other believers that he's led to Christ. He longs to know how they are doing. I want to send Timothy so that I am cheered by news of your walk with God. When our relationships with other believers are rightly oriented, one of the evidences is that we are anxious to learn of God's grace operating in the lives of God's people. A second evidence is that we are focused on the interests of Jesus in the growth of God's people. Very parallel ideas, but I think there's a a nuance of difference here. We should be focused on the interests of Jesus in the growth of God's people. Verse 20. For I have no one like him, no one like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Verse 20, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You notice the word for at the beginning of verse 20. It provides the reason that Paul is sending Timothy to the Philippians. Timothy is indeed a unique man, one who possesses genuine concern for the spiritual welfare of these people. The Greek text reads literally, I have no one of the same mind. That is, Paul found Timothy to be a soulmate, to understand the intensity of concern for other people and their spiritual progress. Paul was intensely concerned for that well-being of the Philippians, and Timothy is going to share that same orientation, such that Paul essentially says, when I send him, I am coming. He will come for me. There's no one like him. Now, that's been a difficult phrase to interpret because there were others that Paul sent and placed great trust in. Apparently it means that there was no one there with him at prison anyone ministering to him who had the freedom to go that had this same perspective. At that particular point in time, it was only Timothy. In fact, Paul frankly notes concerning the others who surround him, apparently just uniquely at this time, verse 21. I mean, these are pointed words. He's not taking care about who he offends necessarily here. He's just speaking the truth. Verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And I asked myself the question as I meditated on this verse, would Jesus say that of me? Would God say this about your orientation toward others, namely that you relate to them with the very interest of Jesus? Or would He say 
that we seek our own interests. You notice there the second half of verse 21, not those of Jesus Christ, that there is a self-interest that does not reflect the interest of Jesus in other people. What if Paul had asked you to leave your family or your daily routine or at least to risk the dangers of journey through the ancient world by land and sea to go visit a church? Would you go? Would the inner anxiety to discern the prosperity of other believers be sufficient to make such a sacrifice? I ask myself the question. And imagine gathering with the Philippian church if you did go on the Lord's Day. You make this long journey, the church is called together, and you walk into the assembly. What would you say? Paul says, hey, he's doing all right. Any message you want me to take back to him? Or would our words be filled with intense interest in their spiritual well-being? And would we know what questions to ask? As we went, would our hearts well up with a concern and anxiety for their spiritual progress? And would we know how to carry that message? Now again, I realize there is a difference between us and Timothy and between us and Paul, and for some that doesn't, uh, would not fit specifically. But is that desire in your heart? Is there that intense interest in the spiritual progress of others? Whatever we should feel and should say in that situation were we to go to the church of Philippi is the very orientation that we should bring with us to this assembly. What would you say as you created your speech to talk to the Philippian church, to pour out that intensity of interest in their spiritual concern? It's no different than what we should have in our spiritual concerns for one another. Here. Now. I can play games and say what I would have done in ancient Philippi, but the real issue, of course, is what I am doing in this day, here, at this place, and with the people that God has brought into my circle of influence. We should be in the process of becoming a church of spiritual shepherds. Now, there's ways of doing that, and there's ways of not doing that. There are indeed some who are so concerned with being a spiritual shepherd, they run right over the sheep and trample them. And I, Clearly, we're not going to hit everybody between the eyes with ten spiritual questions every time that we see them. But is that craving inside? Is it that which leads us to have a sense of anxiety and concern for one another. Do we love one another intensely to see spiritual progress as our hope? This brings us to the very heart of the matter, and that, I think, is our natural bent to orient ourselves to our own interests. You notice that in verse 21 again. They seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus. The business of daily life naturally takes precedence over the needs of others in our hearts and in our affections. We seek our own interests. This is normal. In the social realm, I naturally focus on how others meet my needs and make me feel. This is very normal. In a word, we seek our own interests. But there is a call here, isn't there? There is a call here to honor such men in the assembly who don't think in that way, 
And I think thereby a call to the Philippians and to us to think differently. What it is, I believe, ultimately is a call to take on the very interest that Jesus has in the people that we know. How did He see the lost? In a pastoral culture, Jesus had a vision when He saw the lost of these people before Him as sheep who had been trampled and left for dead, bleeding without a shepherd. No shepherd to pick them up and bind their wounds and carry them home and feed them and bring them to water. Dying sheep is how Jesus saw the lost. I struggle in my own heart, particularly with large crowds, to see the lost as in my way. I don't like traffic jams and long lines. We tend to see the lost according to the way that they cause us trouble and complain about the things that they believe and the way that they taint a culture. But if we would take on the mind of Christ, superseding all of those natural concerns would be an interest in their spiritual welfare. They're like sheep that have been trampled and have no shepherd. This is the mind of Christ as He relates to the lost. And what is the mind of Jesus as He relates to the believer? He sees Himself as their shepherd, calling them into His fold and being willing as the great shepherd to lay down His life in behalf of the sheep. To die for them. We will never rise any higher in this life than to take on that same orientation toward others. It will be a quest to the end of our days, to love the lost as dying sheep and to love the believers as the fold of God for whom we are willing to give our lives. We get again to the heart of what made Paul tick. When we get to the heart of that, it points us directly to the heart of Jesus Christ. This is not just a task for the super-apostles and for the apostolic delegates of the first century, this is an orientation that Jesus calls us to embrace. We'll never rise any higher. When we are oriented to our own interests, when our relationships to others revolve around people liking us, when we lock in on how others meet our social needs, what happens? Our souls shrivel. Our joy is quenched. Our lives grow unspeakably dull. But when we genuinely embrace the fundamental orientation of Jesus, the life force within us begins to pulsate with loving zeal for people. For we perceive them to live in the crosshairs of God's transforming power. We see them in the crosshairs of God's purposes for their good in Christ. And we love them as He loves them. And so our anxiety is conformed into an anxiety that is meaningful. Our joy overflows. Our lives grow rich with grace. In contrast to the pervasive pattern of self-oriented thinking that is so easy to evidence, Paul continues as he describes Timothy, verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. 
in the gospel. The Greek word can be translated for the gospel. The idea is in the cause of the gospel of Christ. Timothy gladly took his subordinate position alongside of Paul, working with dogged determination to reach the lost and build up believers in the revelation about Jesus. By this point in time, Timothy had been with Paul for perhaps ten years And Paul had long ago come to rest his confidence in Timothy's selfless, charactered, responsible orientation toward others. What Timothy had figured out was the call of the gospel as a way of life. From that point forward, his life was oriented not toward his own interests, but toward the interests of Jesus in others. This fits very beautifully in the context of Philippians chapter 2. You remember that classic section of humiliation and the interest in others in chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. Down at verse 4 we read, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who... Though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus gives Himself away. You too are not to think in self-oriented ways, writes Paul, but to put others ahead of yourselves. And Then He comes to Timothy and Epaphroditus and says essentially, here are two men that are doing that. Honor them. Respect them for their orientation toward others. Timothy indeed epitomizes this servant orientation that Jesus lays out for us to follow. And so verse 23, Paul brings to close this brief section, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, probably referring to Paul's legal situation and potential release from prison. He then quickly assures the Philippians that he's not merely sending Timothy to avoid visiting them. In verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. He's genuine here. He can't get there at the moment. He doesn't know his circumstances to even be able to send Timothy at the moment, but he wants to be with them as he wants to be with all of the churches. And there you see again the rising anxiety of one oriented in the right way toward people. He can't spend enough time with people. He wants to be with all of them at once, to be ubiquitous. But only God can do it. And so he just moves the pieces on the board around as well as he can to cover everybody as much as he possibly can and to continue to pour out his life for others. Back to chapter 1 and verse 6. Just in parallel to that thought, he says as we read his heart, Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. We hear there the echo of the shepherd's heart. I can't be there with you. I can't walk you through every stage of discipleship. This is going to have to be covered by others, but ultimately it must be the work of God working in you. He's begun a good work. He will bring it to completion. Verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The way Jesus yearned for their spiritual progress, Paul could say, I yearn for your spiritual progress. 
I can't come right now. At this very moment, I can't even send Timothy. But it is in my heart to send him as soon as I see circumstances present themselves to do so. And I too long to be with you. I yearn for you. Paul looked at others the way that he believed Jesus looked at them. And here again, we have to fight our heart. Fight the self-deception that just says, I can't be Jesus. I can't be the Apostle Paul. I can't think in those ways. I'm just a normal person. Well, Jesus transforms normal people to see life the way he sees it. And by his grace, we will grow in that understanding of one another. In our situation today as a church, we, as we've talked here for some weeks, begin a second service and uh, next Sunday morning, and we've got an auditorium to fill. We have been here before at this place and filled this place once, and we have now a second opportunity to do so as we split between those two morning services. We have people to pursue, people to meet, and it's got nothing to do with the fact that there's empty seats here and will be next week by God's grace, but it has to do with how do we orient toward people and bring them in to the church of Jesus Christ. We have a challenge, I think, as well in the fact that we are, have solidified as a church. There was a time... In fact, when I came to this assembly where no one was too tight because no one had known each other all that long. Everybody was new. There was just a handful of people. And it was different than it is today. Over these years, we have come to develop solid relationships with one another and a few of us even long-lasting relationships with each other. And some of those relationships go deep. And I think the danger putting these ideas together is to fall into a social orientation which excludes others and shrinks our soul with the duller joy of social companionship. What we need to do as a church, as we follow Jesus Christ, is to place high value on those who relate to others with the interest that Jesus has in those same people. Indeed, that needs to be us. How does Jesus look at this person? That's how I need to look at that person. What cravings are in the heart of God for this believer or this unbeliever, for this visitor that I don't know? What cravings does God have? Those are the cravings I need to have. And not to allow, which it is all good and right as relationships solidify and relationships deepen through length of time. It is right for these to develop, but they should never develop to the exclusion of others or to a disinterest in the spiritual standing of others. Always, in every situation, we should look to others as Jesus does, as the great shepherd. This is going to take patience. We need patience with one another, patience to continue to work to this end. It's going to take hard work. It takes an orientation that does not come naturally. To relate to others, to set myself up with others in such a way that I serve as spiritual shepherd, in such a way that I am anxious for their spiritual progress. It will take hard work and it will take risk. 
Such a focus, such a higher focus will increase not only our soul's joy, but also our sorrows and our anxieties. Someone can have a meltdown because a good friend betrays them or the relationship falls apart. But for those that are concerned with the spiritual progress of others, there's many of those kinds of experiences. As people's spiritual life caves in on itself. As someone who we thought knew Christ as Savior had come to saving faith begins to wander away from the faith. As a believer for whom we had such high hopes begins to struggle and stumble and become disinterested, it would appear in the things of God. You set yourself up for a lot of anxiety and a lot of pain, but it's good pain. Because it's the very pain that Jesus has in his heart. As we take this perspective, it will certainly call us to a life of prayer. You cannot miss this, can you? Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 of this chapter. In virtually every book that Paul writes to a church, there is somewhere a prayer. An intense and deep prayer for the spiritual progress of God's people. And this is perhaps where it starts, if we want to say it that way. Said another way, when it's in our heart, it will show itself in our prayers. But it will begin in our prayer life. Perhaps one of the reasons that we do not have the interest of Jesus in other people in public is because we do not have the interest of Jesus in private for them. We need to start with prayers of intensity, deep prayers and large prayers for one another. It certainly needs to affect the way that we talk with one another. Again, this can become stilted. It can become fruitless if all we ever do is grab everyone and sit them down in a chair and interrogate them as to where they are spiritually. That's not going to get you very far at all. It's not the way to go about it by any means. However, it does need to change the way we talk. Is there someone that you talk to in this assembly with whom you have never had a spiritual conversation, you've never talked about the things of the Lord, never talked about the Word of God, never shared any word of exhortation, encouragement, or even mention of prayer? I hope that's not the case with anyone here, but if it is, we might ask, what on earth are we doing? What kind of conversations are we having? Why did God save us? And I would encourage you to begin to talk in such ways, to have such conversations. That's going to mean that we need to spend time talking. There is an appropriate hello and goodbye that we say quickly, but we need to spend enough time to pour out our hearts and interests in one another. This is one reason that we as leaders in the church, as we've talked through the matter of the change of service, are excited about the 915 to 940 slot on Sundays. And I hope that as we gather in this area, just to talk and to relate with one another, interact, that it will be a time that is not simply, as we say, shooting the breeze. But that it will be, in fact, a time of rich spiritual conversation. Perhaps not every week, perhaps not with every individual, but that we will take the time and use it. That we will put it to work. That we will find out where we stand in our walk with God and what struggles we may be facing and encourage each other in the faith. 
How do you perceive your role with others? Are we simply doing meaningless social dances that have no real outcome for eternity, but only for this life and only for the comfort of my own heart in the moment? Or are we relating to one another as spiritual shepherds? As brothers and sisters in Christ, building one another up in the faith, this takes an orientation. And it takes an orientation that is radically different from what comes naturally. To set self-interest aside and to take on the interest of Jesus in other people and to run with it. May Eden Baptist Church, by God's grace, learn to honor and commend an orientation that seeks the interests of Jesus in our interest in others to the glory of God and for the joy of our eternal souls. May God bring it about. May this mind of Jesus be in us to His glory. Let's bow for prayer and seek His help to that end.